Our Father, we recognize the truths that we have just sung, that indeed we are prone to wander. The scriptures refer to us often as sheep, sheep who are prone to drift off course, to leave the presence and the protection of their shepherd. Lord, we confess that we are prone to wander. But Lord, in the same way, we also confess that, Lord, we're collapsed in the hands of omnipotence, that our inheritance is reserved in heaven, protected by the power of God, that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, that's what comforts our hearts even this evening. And Lord, as we come to the study of the text of scripture, Lord, I pray that you would use your words to that end, that you would use your word here to comfort us, to to sanctify us, to cause us to be conformed more to the image of Christ, that you would sanctify us by your word and your word is truth. So Lord, do that work of grace in all of our hearts this evening for your greater glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 14. If you're taking notes this evening, I've titled tonight's message, Blessed Reassurances. Blessed Reassurances, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. In the scriptures, there are numerous designations and ascriptions that are given of God. For example, James writes in James chapter 1, verse 17, that God is the father of lights. In 1 Peter 5, 10, he is the God of all grace. In Isaiah, predominantly, he is the Lord of hosts. Numerous designations, numerous ascriptions that are ascribed to our great God. And yet what Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians might be one of the most marvelous and glorious ascriptions that is offered to God. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The word for comfort there speaks of the encouragement, the consolation that is wrought within the soul as one's spirits are lifted. And the phrase, the God of all comfort, is deeply rooted, is deeply steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. For example, even that latter half of Isaiah's prophecy is referenced as the book of consolation, the book of comfort. In it, we read in Isaiah 51, 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. And in that psalm that we love so well, Psalm 23 We think of our shepherd king. He is the one who walks through the valleys of the shadow of death where we fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. You see in that Psalm, in Psalm 23, it's the presence. It is the protection. It is the provision of the shepherd king which brings comfort to God's people. And to say that God is the God of all comfort is to say that he is the source that he is the fountainhead of all true comfort and peace. Yet we must admit that as has proven true in the history of the church and individually and personally in our own lives, the disposition of comfort and peace is so elusive and so evasive in our own lives. 
You see, oftentimes we find ourselves in situations in the same manner of what we find the disciples this evening in John 14. Troubled in heart and spirit. Consumed with anxious worries and thoughts. Feeling as if our world is crashing and crumbling down around us. And yet in John 14, we see God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, offer words of hope, words of comfort to his beleaguered disciples. In our text this evening, Jesus provides words of consolation and reassurance to his 11 disciples to comfort their troubled hearts on the eve of his crucifixion and ascension to the Father. However, while this sermon is immediately directed to the 11 disciples in the upper room, in John 14, 1 through 14, Jesus provides words of consolation, words of comfort to you, to comfort your, your troubled hearts, to settle your restless spirit in the turbulent tides of life. So how does Jesus provide this consolation? What reassurance does the Lord offer us this evening in this text? Well, in these 14 verses, I want us to look at six comforting reassurances so that your heart would be comforted by the peace that Jesus gives. You know, later in John chapter 14, Jesus says, it's my peace that I give to you, not peace of the world, but my peace, a peace which surpasses all understanding and comprehension. And here in our text this evening, we see Jesus instill that peace in his troubled disciples. I love what the Puritan Thomas Watson writes when he says, if God be our God, he will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, he will make peace within. The world can create trouble and peace, but only God can create peace in trouble. And that is exactly what we find in our text this evening. Martin Luther refers to this passage as the best and most comforting sermon preached by Christ while on earth, a jewel and a treasure not purchasable by the world's goods. And before we look at these comforting reassurances together, I wanna read for us this text in its entirety to set it before your eyes. So if you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to look with me at John chapter 14. I'll begin reading in verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In chapter 13, we saw Jesus, the, the, the cleanser. And tonight, as we turn the page to chapter 14, we see Jesus, the comforter. So let's study this text together. The first comforting reassurance that Jesus offers in this paragraph is that Jesus's person is trustworthy. Jesus's person is trustworthy. Look back at verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That word troubled speaks of an inward turmoil, a, a mental anguish, a spiritual agitation. This word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 40, verse 6, to speak of the cupbearer and the baker who had the dreams in the night. Literally, the, the text is translated, they were dejected. It's also used by John earlier in his gospel in John chapter five, verse seven, to speak literally of the pool of Bethesda that the waters were stirred up. What Jesus is referring to in verse one here by this word troubled, it speaks of this acute mental distress, a turbulence, a turmoil within the soul. Many of you have had the privilege of traveling on airlines and, and airplanes and, and you know what turbulence feels like. You know what turbulence feels like when the plane jolts back and forth. And Jesus is saying, let not your heart experience this inward turbulence, this unsettlement. But to appreciate Jesus's words here in verse one, we have to understand the context of where they're found. You see, this statement comes right on the heels of the previous chapter where he has just predicted that one of the disciples who has been with him for the last three years will betray him. He has just told his disciples that he is gonna be with them a little while longer. And as chapter 13 closes, we see that he directly tells Peter that he will deny him three times before the rooster crows the next dawn. In a mere few hours, Jesus will be suspended on Calvary. I mean, the disciples had every reason under the sun to be distressed and troubled. Their entire worlds were being flipped upside down. Everything that they had known for the last three years of their life in ministry was seemingly soon to dissipate and dissolve. And you know, there's a lesson here for all of us. One's outward circumstances, one's external happenings is not to exert influence or control over your spiritual tranquility. Whether it be you have a flat tire on the side of the road, whether it be you get a poor grade on that test that you studied so hard for, whether it's you're overlooked for that promotion and it's given to someone else, whether you're in financial difficulties, whatever the case is, your external circumstances are not to exert influence or control over your spiritual serenity. Verse 
It's easy in theory, is it not? But hard in practice. How hard is it for us in the midst of suffering and strife, of outward chaos and calamity to not be troubled? And here our Lord gently comes alongside and tells his disciples, despite the external chaos that's taking place, do not let your heart be troubled. Notice the precious remedy and the prescription that Jesus provides at the end of verse one. He says, you're believing in God, believe also in me. That word believe speaks of entrusting oneself to another in complete confidence. And this is another expression that verifies the deity of Christ. In the same way that the disciples were believing in God and had been raised to believe in God with their Jewish upbringing, in the same way be believing in me. And this is the reassurance that Jesus offers his disciples. You see, this isn't a believing unto salvation, a salvific believing. They had already believed unto Christ for salvation. Rather, Jesus is saying, continue to trust in me. Trust in my person. Trust in my word. J.C. Ryle comments on this verse. He says, faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, to trust more entirely, to rest more unreservedly, to lay hold more firmly, to lean back more completely. This is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of all of his disciples. And in the following section that we're going to study, here the Lord Jesus Christ provides words of comfort to his disciples to still their Restless hearts. And his words are completely trustworthy. Trust in me. Trust in my person. And the same is true today for you. The Savior, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one whose promises are yea and amen. He is worthy of your full Whatever trials that you may be experiencing in your life, hear the Savior say, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe also in me. And as we transition to verse two in our text, we transition to a second comforting reassurance that Jesus provides the disciples. And I've labeled it this, the believer's future is certain. The believer's future is certain. Look back at verses two and three. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, not have, to- or I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And as we engage in the study of these two verses, I want to provide you with four elements of Jesus' words here that provides astounding comfort to the soul. The first that I want you to observe is the permanency of this future existence. The permanency. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. 
Here, Jesus refers to heaven as the Father's house. And he says that in heaven, there are many dwelling places. And the word for dwelling places is the same word from which we get abide or, or remain. It's translated in verse 23 as abode. In other words, these dwelling places are not temporary residences. You cannot get evicted from these dwelling places. You don't have to renew a year lease on these dwelling places. They are fixed. They are settled. They are secure. They are permanent. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And that is a citizenship that cannot be revoked. Secondly, I want you to notice from these verses the sufficiency of this future existence, the sufficiency. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Not a few, not many, or not one, but many. This describes the ample provision to accommodate all of the redeemed of all time. And Jesus continues to comfort his disciples in verse two with the trustworthiness of his word. He says, if this were not so, if this was not the case, I would have told you. Third, I want you to notice in these verses the intentionality that is involved with this future existence, the intentionality. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And that word prepare in our text, it, it speaks of making the necessary preparations. It's used that way specifically in a hospitable context of preparing the upper room for the celebration of the Passover meal. And Jesus here with intentionality and deliberateness says, I go to prepare. I go to make the necessary preparations for you. Fourth, I want you to notice the certainty of this future existence. The certainty. Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, and in verse two, he has just said that, then know I will come again and I will receive you to myself. I mean, notice the certainty that is offered in Jesus's words here. He doesn't say, I might come again. He says, I will come again. And not only will I come again, but I will receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And that's what makes heaven heaven, is it not? It's not the, the streets of gold, the pearly gates. It's the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is there that we will be there with unhindered fellowship, unhindered by our sin, basking in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he is, there the believer is also. Whom have I in heaven but you? The psalmist proclaims. You are my portion. You are my inheritance. And what Jesus is referring to here in these verses is what we believe and teach to be the rapture of the church. 
Paul alludes to this event on God's eschatological timetable in 1 Thessalonians 4. And there in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, Paul says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Here in verse 3 of John chapter 14, Jesus comforts the disciples with these words, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know, as Paul concludes that section in 1 Thessalonians 4, he ends with the purpose of the doctrinal teaching that he has just offered. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And here in John chapter 14, the Lord Jesus Christ performs that same ministry of comfort to his followers. Their future is certain. It is secure. Jesus prepares a place for his own that they may be with him forever. Believer, do you want comfort in this life? When all of life and its threatenings and its circumstances seem to assail you, do you want to have tranquility, a peace-filled state? And you must dwell upon the reality and not only the reality, but the certainty of your future existence. Peter writes to encourage those who are undergoing persecution in 1 Peter 5. He talks about their inheritance. It is an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Verse five, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Are you ready? Are you eagerly anticipating, eagerly awaiting the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior? Do you regularly pray alongside the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus, come. For the believer, the imminent appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ provides immense comfort to the troubled and weary heart. The one who is battered and assailed with the troubles and the trials of life can find soul-comforting solace in the comforting reassurance that Jesus offers here in verses 2 and 3. And as our text unfolds, Jesus continues to reassure his disciples. And in verses 4 through 6, Jesus offers a third comforting reassurance. And that third comforting reassurance is that salvation's way is exclusive. Salvation's way is exclusive. You can see there in your Bible in John 14, verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way where I am going. And in verse 5, we hear from another disciple, a different disciple, Thomas. And Thomas asks, he says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. Therefore, how would we know the way? And to be fair, Peter had just asked this question in John 13, verse 36. He says, Lord, where are you going? However, we know from John's gospel that multiple times Jesus has informed them exactly where he is going. He even says earlier in the discourse in verse 3 of the 13th chapter, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. 
And building off this way motif in verse 4, Thomas asked this question, how can we know the way? And Jesus responds in verse 6, continuing along that theme of the way to affirm that he is the exclusive way to the Father's house. Notice in verse 6 that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through me. And notice Jesus again affirms his divine status using that title, I am, ego me. This isn't the first time that we've come across this in John's gospel. Earlier in John's gospel, in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And here in verse six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. When Jesus says that he is the way in verse six, he is affirming that one must approach God through him. If one is to have access to God, it is only through the way which is Christ himself. And Jesus says something earlier in this gospel that affirms the exact same reality. He says in the 10th chapter, verse nine, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. In verse six, Jesus continues and says, I am the truth. When Jesus says that he is the truth, he is saying that he is the complete, he is the definitive revelation of God. Earlier in John's gospel in the prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Later on, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in verse six, Jesus says that he is the life, the life. And Jesus has already affirmed that he is the bread of life in chapter six, that he is the resurrection in the life. And here in verse six, he says, I am the life. And this life does not just speak to a physical vitality or a physical existence, but it alludes to the truth that spiritual life is exclusively mediated through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the definite article that appears multiple times in verse six. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus doesn't say that he is a way, one of many. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, the life. Jesus continues further in verse six and says that no one comes to the father but through me. Interpretation, you can't go above him, you can't go under him, you can't go around, you must go through him. You can see here in Jesus' statement the exclusiveness of the salvation that he proclaims. You see, there is no reconciliation from alienation. There is no restoration from estrangement, but through our Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle again states, he says, our Lord teaches that he is not merely the way to our Father's house in heaven, but that there is no other way and that men must either go to heaven by faith in his vicarious death and atonement or not go there at all. 
And there are many out there. There's sadly many within the Christian camp. I say that Christian camp loosely. Who would advocate for a universality in salvation. You know, there's the Hindu proverb that oftentimes people like to use of religion being kind of a mountain and God is at the top and there's multiple paths and routes that make their way up to the mountain. It doesn't matter how you get there just as long as you get there and you achieve peace with God. There are those who assert that to preach that the Christian gospel is the exclusive and sole means of salvation, that that's hateful. That's unloving. That's so narrow-minded. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ, who is incarnate love himself, says here that there is no other way. The same message that Jesus preached is the same message that the apostles preached and is the same message that you and I are to proclaim. In Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven amongst men which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice how these words of Jesus provide comfort to these battered and assailed disciples. How is salvation's way being exclusive comforting or reassuring to Jesus' followers? We'll look back at verse 4 again. Jesus says, you know the way. Yes, Thomas is misguided here, viewing this in literal sense, in a physical sense, but the disciples did in fact know the way. The way that Jesus has just proclaimed here in verse six. You see earlier in John's gospel, in John 1, 41, Andrew comes to Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. John 1, 45, Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, we have found the one whom Moses in the law and the prophets foretold. John 1, 49, Nathaniel says that we have found the king of Israel and the son of God. There is an exclusive way of salvation and the disciples knew that way. But be not mistaken. This was not of their own cleverness. This was not of their own intellect or wit. This was not just because they had the sins to believe in Jesus while the masses rejected him. We see in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter confesses the Christ at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is quick to affirm in verse 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's an exclusive way, an exclusive means of salvation. And it's because of God's gracious and sovereign choice that the believer knows that way. And I must ask you this evening, are you trusting in this exclusive way of salvation? To borrow the language of the hymn, has your faith found a resting place? Are you still trusting in your own good deeds paired along with Jesus' righteousness? Or can you affirm alongside of Paul in Philippians chapter three that you count all of that as rubbish? 
for the sake of having a righteousness which comes upon the grounds of faith? Have you trusted exclusively in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? In his perfect life lived in your stead, in his substitutionary death on Calvary's cross, in his resurrection from the dead. Not have you signed a card, not have you written in the front of your Bible, not have you attended Countryside Bible Church for your life, but are you presently right now trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ? There is no other way. If you've experienced God's gracious work of spiritual regeneration, revealing, that you, revealing to you that salvation is found exclusively and solely in Jesus Christ, Brothers and sisters, you can rest assured that whatever assails you in this life, that you are having eternal life. John 3.36, he who believes in me is present tense having eternal life. Salvation's way is exclusive. This leads us to a fourth comforting reassurance and we find this in verses seven through 11 and we'll call this the Trinity's identity is confirmed. The Trinity's identity is confirmed and you can see this unfold in verses seven through 11. And the central message of these verses is that Jesus Christ, the son of God, is co-equal, co-eternal and consubstantial with the father. Jesus is one in essence with the Father, so that seeing the Son is seeing the Father. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. But we must ask ourselves, how can this be? You see, John has already affirmed in his gospel in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. He says earlier in chapter one, verse 18, that no one has seen God at any time. And yet here in verse seven, Jesus says, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Well, Jesus provides the answer earlier in John's gospel. He says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. Jesus in this text is claiming complete equality with the father. And as this text unfolds, the attention gets put upon another disciple, the disciple Philip. And in verse 8, Philip asks a question that continues to highlight the misunderstanding and the confusion of the disciples. Rather than acknowledging what Jesus has just said in verse 7, Philip asks for a visible manifestation of the Father. Show us the Father and it is enough. Obviously, it's clear that Philip and the disciples haven't yet got the point. In verse 9, Jesus provides a gentle rebuke. And it's in verse 9 that we see the heart of the Savior on full display. This response is tinged with sadness. Jesus says, have I been so long with you and yet not come to know me, Philip? Philip, I have been with you for day and night for three years. 
We have dined together. We have done ministry together. You have witnessed me perform miracles that testify that I verily am the Son of God, the Messiah. You have heard my teaching on a daily basis, and yet you still have not come to comprehend and know me fully. Jesus says here in verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father because they are one in essence. Jesus in the incarnation is God manifest. Paul writes in that great hymn of Christ in Colossians chapter one, he says he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. In John's prologue, in verse 14, John affirms that the word who was prostantheon, who was towards God, who was face to God with intimate fellowship from before the creation of the world has dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Jesus continues in verse 10. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus, earlier in the gospel, he confronts the unbelieving Jews in the 10th chapter. He says in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Later in that same dialogue, he says in verse 38, that the Father is in me and I in him. You know, oftentimes we're prone to chide and we're prone to ridicule the disciples for their misunderstanding and their unbelief. This is to think that we would be more wise and more astute than they. Yet I want you to notice that while Philip and while the disciples have not gotten it yet, that there's coming a day when they will. Let your eyes glance down to verse 20. Jesus says, In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In what day? Verse 18. In the day that I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, In what day, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. When the Holy Spirit is poured out upon his disciples, they would come to more clearly understand the truth that Jesus is teaching, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And Jesus affirms here that the words that he is speaking is not his own mere whimsical belief. Jesus says, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus affirms earlier in the gospel in John 7, 16, he says that my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And Jesus's words are completely trustworthy as he speaks on behalf of God, as the incarnate word of God, as the ultimate prophet. The author of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. But if the perplexed disciple shall not believe Jesus' trustworthy word, Jesus points him to his works themselves. Jesus says, my works testify 
to the fact that I and the Father are one. And as we consider this comforting reassurance that Jesus provides his disciples, I want us to consider how the Trinity's identity being confirmed is a comforting reassurance to the disciples in the upper room and to us today. The truth that Jesus proclaims here in these verses provides comfort because Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the theanthropic God-man, the divine Lagos, the heavenly shepherd who provides comfort to his disciples. Ultimately, the fact that Jesus is one with the Father means that he is one with him in purpose and mission, meaning that Jesus has come to perfectly accomplish the will of God and the plan of redemption and redeeming his sheep from their sins. As the text continues, we're introduced to a fifth comforting reassurance. And we find this fifth one in verse 12, and it is this. The believer's ministry is empowered. Jesus says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Undoubtedly, the works here referenced in verse 12 refers to the apostolic ministry of the disciples and their proclamation of the gospel and their performing of miracles and healings, even as miracles and greater works are referenced in verses 10 and 11. However, as the apostolic age came to a close, as the canon of scripture was completed, these apostolic sign gifts ceased to be functional in the life of the church. And Jesus continues in verse 12. He says, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now, before we proceed too far in our text, we need to understand what this does not mean. This does not mean that you or I have the greater capability, the greater capacity to one up, to outdo the eternal son of God. Bill Johnson, the, the spiritual leader of Bethel Church in Redding, California, I'm not going to call him a pastor because he's not. In his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, he says this. He says, Jesus' prophecy of us doing greater works than he did has stirred the church to look for some abstract meaning to this very simple statement. Many theologians seek to honor the works of Jesus as untainable, which is religion fathered by unbelief. Jesus' statement is not that hard to understand. Greater means greater. And the works he referred to are signs and wonders. It will not be a disservice to him to catch this, to have a generation go beyond his own high water mark. That is not what Jesus is talking about here with greater works. You see, the adjective greater can mean greater in quantity, greater in quality, but what I would submit to you here in our text, it speaks to a greaterness in extent, a greaterness in scope. Jesus is saying that disciples would do greater works in extent, both in the performance of the healing miracles that are attested through throughout the Acts of the Apostles, 
but even more so through the spiritual miracle of the spread of the gospel and the salvation of the lost. During Jesus' incarnational ministry on the earth, his ministry extended to those in Palestine and Galilee and Judea. Yet following his ascension, his disciples would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. At the end of the Acts of the Apostles in Acts 28, Paul is there on the continent of Europe in Rome proclaiming the gospel. Yes, under house arrest, but the gospel has traveled. A.W. Pink, he writes, the preaching of the risen and exalted Savior the proclaiming of the gospel to every creature, the turning of souls from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of the living God. These things were far greater than the interference with the course of nature's laws. And how is it possible that Jesus's followers would perform greater works? Well, look at the cause that Jesus offers in verse 12. He says, because I go to the Father. Later in the discourse in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is exactly because Jesus returns to the Father that he subsequently pours out his Holy Spirit upon his followers to indwell them and to empower them for ministry. At the end of Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, verse 49, we see this. Jesus, he says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In Acts, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. R.C. Sproul helpfully comments, he says, Jesus does not mean that we would do all miracles for all the ages, but that the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform works that go far beyond the local community of Jerusalem and Judea. And while this verse has specific application to the disciples in the upper room, undoubtedly so, I would be remiss if I did not draw out the implications for us today. You see, the New Testament teaches that God has empowered he has enabled the believer through the indwelling Holy Spirit and the sovereign dispensing of spiritual gifts. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. When you are evangelizing, when you are proclaiming the gospel, not only do you have the power of the message of the gospel, Romans 1.16, but you have the power of the indwelling omnipotent Holy Spirit within you. The believer has been empowered for ministry. Let's look at the sixth comforting reassurance together. We see this in verses 13 through 14. And this sixth comforting reassurance is this. Efficacious prayer is guaranteed. Effective prayer is guaranteed. Jesus says in verses 13 through 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask any, me anything in my name, I will do it. What is Jesus saying here? Is he giving you a blank check to ask for whatever your soul wishes? But just be sure to tack on that magical formula in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. 
What does praying in Jesus' name mean? This isn't new information for you, but this is helpful that we have as a solid bedrock of our understanding. You see, to pray in Jesus' name means to pray according to God's revealed will and purposes. We have that in the scriptures. To pray in Jesus' name means to acknowledge him as the high priest, the one who advocates and intercedes before the throne of God. To pray in Jesus' name means to acknowledge your own inadequacy in and of yourself and to look outside of yourself to the all-sufficient one who supplies all of your needs according to his riches and the glory in Christ Jesus. So these prayers of praying in Jesus' name are extensively qualified. This is not a blank check, but I want you to notice the purpose that Jesus gives in verse 13 that is bracketed by both of these guarantees for efficacious prayer. Jesus says, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus provides the comforting reassurance that he will answer the prayers and requests of his disciples according to his will and his purposes. What this means for you, believer, is that you can have great confidence in approaching the eternal throne of God, knowing that you will find help and grace in a time of need. Jesus is about to depart from his disciples. And Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what lessons are we to learn from this glorious text? I'll give them to you shortly. We don't have the time to unfold these as I wish I could, but first we learn that Jesus is completely trustworthy. His person and his word are sure. He is the rock of ages. He is the good shepherd. Secondly, we learn that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. I didn't mention this as we studied verse one, but in the previous chapter in verse 21, the same word that is used, troubled, is used of the Messiah. It says that Jesus was troubled in spirit. He was not troubled at his external circumstances. No, he was troubled that one of his own would betray him. You see, Jesus was the one who partook of flesh and blood so that he may represent his brethren as a faithful, as a merciful, as a gracious high priest. Thirdly, we learn from our text that the believer's inheritance is certain and secure. Jesus is the one who has prepared a place for a prepared people and just as sure he will come again so that we may be with him where he is. The fourth lesson that we need to take from this text is that the believer's prayer is heard and answered according to God's will. The believer's prayers are answered and heard according to God's will. In John's first epistle, in 1 John 5, 14, John writes, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
Psalm 34, verse 17. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears. Our God is the God who hears the prayers of his people and the God who answers those prayers according to his purposes. Blessed reassurances indeed. May God enable us by his grace to experience the comforting reassurance that this text provides the follower of Christ. May God by his grace engrave with an indelible mark these truths upon the fabric of our heart, all for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies. And here we see our gentle shepherd, our compassionate, our gracious shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, offering comforting reassurances to troubled hearts. Oh God, do the work of grace in our own hearts that we may drink freely of the comfort that the Lord provides in our text this evening, that we may see him and rightly glorify him and exalt him as our comforter. Oh God, if there's anyone that does not know you or know the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ here this evening, would you regenerate their hearts? Would you reveal to them, open their spiritually dead eyes to the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Do that for your own glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.